Rock is lit! Hey there, lit listeners. Welcome to another episode of Rock is Lit, the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, and also a finalist in the 2023 PopCon Indie Podcast Contest in the category of art and culture. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hi, this is Wadi Wachtel. You're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Rock is Lit is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. Special shout out to this semester's Rock is Lit interns, production intern Cater Jones, and social media intern Jenna Rudolph. Find out more about me and Rock is Lit on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. Drop me a line at ChristyAlexanderHallberg at gmail.com to let me know what rock novels you'd like to hear featured on the show. And for goodness sakes, subscribe, comment, leave a five-star rating and all that good stuff on your podcast platform of choice. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for your support. In this episode, I'm joined by Constance Squires, author of the 2017 rock novel Live from Medicine Park. The story follows Ray Wheeler, who arrives in Medicine Park, Oklahoma, with the goal of filming a documentary about the comeback of Lena Wells, a singer whose career got derailed by a bad late-night TV appearance in the 1980s. Ray, known for his philosophy of non-involvement with his subjects, finds himself drawn into Lena's world as he begins to probe into her past. As Ray delves deeper into Lena's story, he uncovers secrets surrounding her bandmate Cyril and Lena's son Graham. Meanwhile, Graham's wife Jetty, a talented musician herself, struggles to pursue her passion for music in the face of familial disapproval. The novel delves into themes of ambition, identity, and the search for authenticity. In addition to Live from Medicine Park, Constance Squires is the author of the forthcoming novel, Low April Sun, from University of Oklahoma Press. She's also the author of the 2012 Oklahoma Book Award-winning novel, Along the Watchtower, and the short story collection, Hit Your Brights. Her short fiction has received multiple Pushcart Prize nominations and other awards, and appeared in many prestigious journals, such as The Atlantic, Guernica, The Dublin Quarterly, Shenandoah, and the Rolling Stone 500. She wrote the screenplay for the short film Grave Misgivings, has published nonfiction in The Village Voice, The New York Times, Salon, World Literature Today, and been featured on NPR's Snap Judgment. She holds a PhD in English and is currently a professor of creative writing at the University of Central Oklahoma. Live from Medicine Park was a 2018 Oklahoma Book Award finalist. Rock is Lit alumnus Jeff Jackson included the novel in his Electric Lit article, Seven Candidates for the Great American Rock and Roll Novel. I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk to her about this must-read for music fans. But first, dim the lights, flick your bick, and get into the groove of the story with this excerpt from the first chapter of Live from Medicine Park, read by the author. Then, join us for a captivating convo about the novel and more. Back in a bit with author Constance Squires. Williams and Zinger killed poor Hattie Carroll With a cane that he twirled around his diamond ring finger At a Baltimore hotel society gathering And the cops was called in And his weapon took from him As they rode him in custody Down to the station And booked Williams and Zinger Chapter 1, The Silver Sun Hotel, Medicine Park, Oklahoma, May 18, 2000. Maybe if Ray Wheeler were the kind of filmmaker to make big-budget sci-fi flicks instead of documentaries on a shoestring, he'd be rolling into Oklahoma to tell some high-concept escape story. Futuristic Oklahoma would be a deceptively idyllic penal farm where they'd send Texans for reconditioning. 
screw-up Texans like himself would shuffle across a green lawn in hospital gowns and think on their sins. The scenario didn't seem too far off the mark as he pulled out his camera and started shooting. A narrow main street and the sun-dappled creek that ran alongside it came into view. As he imagined the hero of his sci-fi plot making a run for it across the two-lane blacktop, a sun-faded billboard too big for the weed-choked side of the road where it stood announced Medicine Park, Oklahoma, as the home of rock legend Lena Wells. Ah, Lena Wells, his real main character. As Ray and his producer Martin Parker passed the sign, the subject of their upcoming documentary stared at them from under a curtain of long black hair, hands in the pockets of her buckskin hip huggers. It was an old picture, as of course it would have to be. She hadn't made an album since the end of the 70s. That's overstating it a bit, Ray said, nodding at the sign. Legend. You think a lot of famous people come from here, Martin replied, steering Ray's Jeep around a narrow turn. We're proud of her. Ray kept quiet. He didn't give a damn about Lena Wells, but it didn't matter. Love your subject. That had been one of his mantras in the classroom, and Martin, who had been a student before he became on this project, his producer, was quick to remind him of it. Ray let the camera follow a red cobblestone promenade that ran along the water until it found a white metal bridge and a low waterfall with a strip of flat stones across the top, where water streamed smooth as glass. Close to the banks, a line of tall old catalpas stood like upright citizens, dipping their bare toes in the healing water. The water must heal, or be rumored to heal, if the names on the map meant anything. Medicine Creek, Medicine Park. He was ready for some healing. Dunking or chanting, bloodletting or snake handling, he didn't much care. He would gladly suspend disbelief for anything that promised to save his soul, shape him up, and set him back on his feet. Even if it kicked his ass. Even if it hurt a little bit. It was the new millennium, after all. A cosmic reset that had not ended the world the way some people feared. Maybe if it wasn't an ending, it was a beginning. Time to start again. Ray pointed at the name of the town in metal letters on a yellow brick post office. Medicine Park sounded like a spot for druggies to meet and exchange soggy wads of bills for plastic baggies full of illegal what-have-you, but he knew that wasn't the right picture. What kind of medicine? The good kind, Martin said. He was from here, Comanche County, Oklahoma, and he knew all about the place. Do you think it will work for me, Ray asked. No way, Martin laughed. You're a hopeless case. On the edge of the water, its cylindrical roof curving down to the red dirt, sat a large Quonset building that Ray guessed was to be the site of the free Lena Wells concert. She was calling it the Medicine Ball, which they would be filming in five days. The only hint of the upcoming show was the presence of a few tents pitched near the building's front doors and a banner strung between the tents with Lena's name block-lettered in purple magic marker. A thin man loped around the impromptu campsite, wearing what appeared to be head-to-toe silver lame, with headgear like the rings of Saturn bobbing around his ears. The early arrival of fans was a good sign. Maybe people remembered Lena Wells, enough at least to generate some interest in the documentary. Maybe by the time the concert started, there'd be a line of fans snaking halfway to the highway. It didn't hurt to hope. She had been pretty big for a little while. I was thinking about the night she tanked on The Tonight Show, Ray said. I saw that. Dude, no wonder you don't like her. Oh, I don't know. I felt sorry for her. She was so wasted. I was watching with my mom and dad, expecting, you know, Phyllis Diller or Richard Pryor, some antic banter. Ray slid his camera back into its case as they pulled into a gravel parking lot where a couple of cars and two white catering vans sat partially obscured by a stand of cottonwoods. The Silver Sun Hotel, home of Lena Wells, emerged from behind waving tree limbs. Looks just like it did on the cover of Keep Your Powder Dry, Martin said. The white frame building was three stories high, girdled by a covered veranda as wide as a highway lane. Its columns, peculiarly made from stacks of round red stones shaped like cannonballs. Lavender and orange stained glass panels and a starburst pattern filled the center of heavy doors at the top of the veranda stairs. It used to be a resort hotel, Martin continued. Bootleggers hung out here in the 30s. Bonnie and Clyde, too. Lena bought and refurbished it in like 1980, maybe 79. Nobody answered the door when they rang the bell. They stood around and pressed the buzzer again and again. Gusts of hot wind came along every few seconds and dried their sweat. They know we're coming, right? 
Ray walked to a window and tried to peer in. Wood blinds on the inside blocked the view. Finally, the door was opened by a small man with slick-back blonde hair, dressed in a white catering smock. The party begins at seven o'clock, he said. We're the film guys, Ray said. I don't know a thing about that, the man said. I'm setting up for the party. Couldn't you let us in? I don't think so. What if you're bad guys? Bad guys? Like thieves or something? Robbers? Ray turned to Martin. Are you a bad guy? Martin tipped his hat back and scratched his hairline. Isn't anybody else here? We did say three o'clock, right? Ray looked around. Lena's son, Graham Wells, and his wife lived on the premises. At least Graham had said so. Where were they? Ray was taking out his cell phone to call Graham when they heard the loud rumble of a motorcycle engine and gravel churning. They turned around to see a big man ride into the parking lot on an old blue BMW motorcycle with a sidecar. He pulled right up to the stairs and swung off the bike, dropping the kickstand and hanging his helmet over a handlebar. Obviously relieved, the caterer waved at the guy with the motorcycle and disappeared into the house, leaving the front door open. Hi there, the motorcyclist climbed the stairs and offered his hand to Ray. He was every bit of six foot five with oily braids and a long beard streaked with gray. I'm Sai. Ray couldn't visualize the spelling of his name. He only heard him say S-I-G-H instead of C-Y and thought how poorly the wistfulness and resignation, the oh-mercy-me quality of the word fit the man. Sigh. Hey there, Sigh. I'm Ray Wheeler. This is Martin Parker. Sigh pushed his sunglasses to the top of his head to reveal white-blue eyes like a husky's in a sun-darkened face. I figured. Sigh swung open the stained-glass doors and waved the two visitors into an open room. The Great Room, Sai called it. Gleaming pinewood planks reached 60 or 70 feet to the back windows, where sunlight poured in. Fireplaces big enough to park motorcycles inside, made of those same red cannonball-like rocks and ringed by leather furniture, faced one another from the sidewalls. From the back wall protruded a short stage covered with overlapping Persian rugs and rigged out with amps, microphones, a black Steinway piano with a red fiberglass tambourine discarded on its top, and a grouping of guitars. Looks like rehearsals are underway, Ray said. Yeah, wonder who plays that Hefner. Martin nodded at a green electric bass leaning against the back wall. When Sai shut the front door behind them, Ray's eyes focused on white twinkling strings of Christmas lights hung in long horizontal rows across the ceiling. The main light in the room, though, came from an enormous chandelier made of elk antlers hanging from the middle of the low wood beam ceiling and a row of track lights trained on the stage. Several gold records, framed and hung along the back wall, grabbed the light and threw it back into the room. A drafting table lamp beamed over a mixing board set up at the old marble-topped reception desk to their right, where, decades ago, guests would have picked up their room keys. Good light was satisfying, like when a car starts right up on a cold day. He could film here with little to no additional lighting. Who was this big guy? Lena's husband? Boyfriend? brother, manager. He felt right at home, that was sure. Whoever he was, the man felt no need to explain. He gave Ray and Martin a broad smile, his white blue eyes relaxed and merry. Let me show you to your rooms. They picked up their suitcases and followed him. On the back of Sai's leather riding vest, a patch said, Red Dirt Sober Bikers, and stitched across the bottom half of his jacket with purple thread were the words, Heavy, heavy blues as my feathers are light. Midnight of the Morning of American Night. Ray remarked, I know those words. Of course you do, Martin said, sounding embarrassed. Trip the wind, Sai said, without turning around. Lena Wells only had four or five hit songs, and this was one of them. Once Sai said the title, Ray conjured Lena's throaty alto, laying down the words against the side-widening guitar riff that invoked the smell of roasting meat at a barbecue joint in El Paso, where he had worked his first summer job. The owner had played Trip the Wind in Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street 20 times a day on the jukebox while Ray stoked an old black smoker in an unair-conditioned kitchen. He couldn't remember whether he had ever liked the songs. Maybe he had. But now they were too tied up with sense memories of raw flesh and flies for him to feel anything but distaste when he heard them. One of her best, he said. As they crossed the wide room, several people dressed in cooking whites came out of what he guessed was the kitchen, heading for the back door, carrying stainless steel steam pans. What's with the caterers? Ray asked. For the party, Sai said. I hope we haven't come at a bad time. 
Sai looked over his shoulder at him. Didn't anybody tell you? Lena's throwing you a party tonight. Behind him, Ray heard Martin clear his throat. Sorry, Ray. I forgot to mention it. Hey, that's real nice, Ray said. He hated parties. You'll be staying on the third floor, Sai said. As he led the way, Ray and Martin followed him up the worn oak stairs, slick in the middle from use. What's on the second floor? Ray asked as they passed the landing. Lena, Sai threw back, not turning around. Ray looked left and saw only closed doorways down a hallway dimly lit with amber sconces. They took the next flight, and on the third floor, Sai drew two old-fashioned keys from a keychain on his belt and unlocked a door. This is yours, he said, nodding at Ray. You're across the hall, he told Martin. It's not the Hilton, but you know, it's quaint and all, and we're putting you right here on the premises like you asked. He pointed down the hall at a brass-lined dumbwaiter. Ring the bell and use the pulley, and Edith will help you out if she's in the kitchen. She's the housekeeper, and she's here till two or three. Send down a note. I wouldn't ask her for a five-course meal or nothing, but if you need a Coke from the fridge, she'll do it. Ray stepped into the room. A double bed covered in a peach-colored chenille bedspread took up most of the space. Mission-style furniture crowded the room, a nightstand, a marble-top bureau, and over the window, a table with two straight-back chairs tucked under it with a black and orange Navajo rug underneath. In the corner, a TV with a DVD player sat on a small stand. The room smelled green and damp in a bacterial way that the sharp chill from the humming window unit suppressed but didn't hide. See you at the party, Martin called from across the hall as the door to his room slammed shut. Ray stretched out across the bed and kicked off his boots, staring at the deep trial marks in the stucco ceiling and walls. An enlarged sepia photograph of a leathery-faced American Indian leaning on his rifle, hair hacked off at his chin, hung next to the bathroom. Geronimo. Lena had always claimed to be a descendant of the old warrior, but Ray assumed it was a tall tale. The photograph on the wall was one he had seen dozens of times. It seemed like every gas station west of New Orleans had a rack of vintage Wild West postcards, and this particular shot of Geronimo was usually among them. He got up and unpacked a stack of rock documentary DVDs he hoped would enthuse him about this new project. He was uninspired so far, embarrassed to find himself on the rockumentary bandwagon, which was lumbering forward like a glittery parade float now that the year 2000 had arrived. Psychically, the start of the new millennium had left him in a crater the size of his life when it hit. But everything still looked the same. Same grubby, uneven world. And as far as he could see, the millennium mark was nothing more than an occasion to rehash the past, rockumentaries being only one symptom of this tendency. For an art form dedicated to the new and the now, rock and roll leaned hard toward nostalgia. It worked on canonization as it went. And now he would be part of the narrative-forming machine, arguing for Lena Wells' place in the big rock story. Why she was important, why we must not forget the vital contribution of Lena Wells. Rockumentaries, what a downer. If you were going to choose a rock musician from the 70s to profile, it would be somebody underground, not Lena Wells, an artist whose big stadium shows and fringe-wearing Baroque style were exactly the sort of thing that had sent him and so many other people screaming into the arms of punk rock. This is Constant Squires, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Welcome to the podcast, Connie. Hello, thank you. Representing Oklahoma, home of Ralph Ellison, N. Scott Mamaday, and the writer who made me want to become a writer, S.E. Hinton. Now, I know your dad was an Army Ranger, so you've lived all over the place. How long have you lived in Oklahoma? Quite a long time. I ended up coming back from being stationed in Germany and, and going to high school here. And I've gone everywhere. I've lived other places off and on, but I've more or less been here most of my adult life. Oklahoma is very much a character in your novel Live from Medicine Park, and Medicine Park is indeed a real town. What aspects of the landscape did you want to highlight in the book? I think I was trying to sort of duplicate the sense of amazement I felt when I first moved here from Germany. I felt like I was in the landscape of the Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote, you know, mm-hmm. that, I mean, I was still a kid, so I guess that was my frame of reference, but I just hadn't realized that the West really looked like the West, you know, and um, not all of Oklahoma looks like Southwest Oklahoma, where Medicine Park is. I think Oklahoma is sort of, people think of it as, as the plains, but the area down there in Southwest Oklahoma is much more connected to the Texas panhandle and, you know, it just, it's just much more desert looking. And so I was intrigued by showing it. It just seemed like a part of the country that I had never seen in a book, except for in about two paragraphs in, in Scott Mamaday's The Way to Rainy Mountain. Right. I've read that Bob Dylan's music inspired the novel. Was there a particular song that grabbed you or was it something more general than that? It was a lot of his music. I think that when I started writing lyrics for the characters, I wanted um, Jetty and Lena to have very different lyrical styles. And uh, Lena's voice, I would listen to Bob Dylan when I was going to write her music, especially, you know, his ballads. I just imagined her style being sort of akin to that. Originally, I think the novel started out with one of those two women as the focal point. Jetty. It was originally Jetty's story before shifting to focus on Ray. What prompted the shift? Jetty's voice just didn't work. It started as a short story that I published in the Dublin Quarterly in like 2006. And Jetty was the first character that I had. And I imagined it as this triangle as Jetty and Graham and Lena. And in that configuration, it, it sort of looked like great expectations. You know, it looked like Lena as a Miss Havisham kind of character, <laughs> you know, and Jetty as the uh, as the the stranger that comes to town sort of thing. That worked for the short story, but for the novel, there was just no tension in having her be the main character because she wanted something that was so legible and clear. Yeah, that I could not find a way to create any complexity. I went through a couple drafts where I had alternating points of view with different characters. And then I had a draft where I inserted this documentary filmmaker into it. The whole idea of the documentary happened after a few drafts where I realized I simply must have a ticking clock on this thing. I have to have an event that they're moving toward. Otherwise, it's just too open-ended. So when I had the idea for the documentary, I had Ray in there first just as one voice. And uh, it was pretty clear right away that he was a better voice than the others. He had an angle of vision that none of the others had. Right. And so slowly, I surrendered to the idea that I was going to have to cut 
absolutely every bit of absolutely every other draft and oh, moral no. stories. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there were some details and descriptions I was able to keep, but mostly, you know, it was a redo. But yeah, Ray, he had the ability to see them all. And I had to realize that he couldn't be a fan. Initially, I thought he would be a fan, sort of like Martin is. And that again, there's just no tension in that at all. You know, the scenes were so boring. So I made him hater. That helped. It just slowly became his story. And then I think probably one of the last couple of drafts is when I realized that he needed backstory, you know, that, that he needed to have a reason that he really needed this to work. Otherwise, he was too much of a fly on the wall. He didn't have any skin in the game. And so his backstory sort of emerged out of a need to, to make it his story and, and not just have him narrate someone else's story. Okay, so when you figured out you're going to have this documentary filmmaker come in and sort of take the lead, how much did you know about documentary filmmaking or did you have to just immerse yourself in research? Because it, it comes across in the book as so authentic. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. No, I didn't know anything about it at all. I had to ask people about it and read about it. I knew a couple of people around here who had done some documentary filmmaking there's a guy named Jeff Palmer that I'd written a screenplay for. He, he did mostly short documentary films. I asked him, I talked to Sterling Harjo up in Tulsa, who did documentary work at that time. I had to get enough of a technical sense to understand just how the thing would be set up, how the, the filming would be set up. So let's talk more about Ray. Since we're on the subject of documentary filmmaking, he's got this interesting take about how he should film his subjects. He sees himself as this cool, objective filmmaker who never interferes with his subjects. Like at the beginning of the book, he's shooting this documentary film and something happens. This junkie breaks into a pharmacy in Texas and he shoots a security guard and Ray just keeps right on filming while the guard is lying there bleeding because Ray's code as a filmmaker is to never interfere with his subjects. And he has this sort of warped way of justifying his behavior, which makes him a bit of an unreliable narrator. Tell me more about Ray. Well, I love unreliable narrators. They are my favorite. And um, so it was delightful to write him. I had so much fun. That particular form of unreliability, partly I'm sort of always thinking about modernism. You know, like I, I was thinking... T.S. Eliot's always holding to the idea that there was no uh, nothing personal in his poetry, which was so obviously untrue. And the, the emotional fragility behind the need to believe that, I just think about it a lot for whatever reason. And then I was watching Showtime one night and I saw some documentary program. I can't think of the name of it, but it was a show where they followed documentary filmmakers as they were filming. And I saw this guy film while a guy was shot. It was a, a gang kid near the border. I was sickened by the uh, footage because I had not sat down in my living room prepared to watch this teenage boy bleed out, but the guy just kept filming. Jesus. Yeah. And then afterward, the Showtime documentarian was asking the guy about it, and he professed basically what I gave to Ray, which was this it's my ethical obligation to not interfere under any circumstances. I just thought that was so deluded and problematic. And, you know, it hid such emotional cowardice. I really hated it. And I thought, oh, that's it. That's what I am missing with Ray. He has to have a lesson to learn. You know, he has to sort of realize some things about himself. The whole backstory with Rio Marone kind of arose from that. I remember watching a documentary on Joan Didion. It's the one that came out just a, a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. The Center Will Not Hold, I think is the name of it. And she was talking about going to some apartment in San Francisco and seeing this little kid, like five years old, white lipstick, sitting in the middle of the floor. He's on acid. You know, you would think, oh, weren't you horrified? And she said, no, it was like gold because she knew she was going to be able to write about it. Uh. Sort of the same kind of ethical blind spot. Where, as the artist, do you say, maybe turn off the camera, turn off the brain in terms of gathering information and do something about this? It's fascinating. 
It is. That's a wonderful comparison. It, it really is a similar kind of thing. The subject of Ray and his producer Martin's film, of course, is rock legend Lena Wells. She hasn't made an album since the end of the 70s, and her career came to a screeching halt after a disastrous appearance on The Tonight Show in 1981. What kind of rock star is Lena? She is, in my mind, kind of a combination of um, maybe Stevie Nicks and Lucinda Williams, you know, a little bit of Grace Slick kind of in there. Just that 70s fringe-wearing, bell-bottom, kind of goddess-like star. I was totally flashing on Stevie Nicks, and I don't know as much about Lucinda Williams, but Stevie Nicks, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I grew up loving Stevie Nicks, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you probably did too. So yeah, she was kind of in my DNA, and and maybe I was sort of processing my, uh, my childhood adoration of her in some way. Going back to Ray, I love that he says of filmmaking, I want to catch things on camera the way they were before I walked in with my camera. And this part comes much later in the novel, and he's talking with Lena. And she says, you've already changed things because you walked in with your camera. You know, I love what that says about the legitimacy of documentary films. And I think you can extend that to memoir, that genre as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. When he said that, I was thinking about the Wallace Stevens poem about the jar in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. The minute you set something down into the environment, you've changed the environment. And that we always, always want to describe things purely, to experience things purely. But our perceptual apparatus distorts everything. And, And that distortion is, on some level, what the story's kind of exploring. Right. You mentioned earlier the films by Jeff Palmer and talking with him about documentaries. I watched Grave Misgivings the other day and really loved it. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yes. So for those of you listening, it's an 11-minute, around 11-minute, black and white film by Jeff Palmer about Geronimo, but it's written by Connie. Pretty early in the film, the narrator says these words, which he wrote, Now Geronimo's name, his face and his grave have lives of their own. They signify stories, attitudes, actions, all kinds, true and false. So the film came out, or you did the film in 2015. So this is before 2017, when Live from Medicine Park came out. But those words so strongly figure into the novel, as does Geronimo as a motif. Talk to me a little bit about how this historical figure intersects with the lives of the characters and the themes that his presence brings to the narrative. I was already working on the book. I mean, I was many drafts into the book, actually, when I met Jeff and we realized we had this sort of shared interest in Geronimo's story. We worked together at the same university. So I was in the book when I was doing that. But I guess I was thinking about myth quite a lot. And Geronimo is one of those figures. Well, like the thing you read, their name evokes a whole world and a whole lot of assumptions and a whole lot of ideas. And the way Lena sort of pulls that to herself, sort of wraps herself in it, I felt different ways about it. On the one hand, I felt very sympathetic toward Lena. I felt like this is what we do. We create ourselves out of ourselves. We invent our own narratives, especially someone like her with no father. She's an orphan. She simply has to tell herself a story that allows herself to go out in the world and do what she's going to do. And she does have reason to believe that she is uh, related to Geronimo. So there's that side of it. But then there's also, it's kind of problematic, her sort of appropriating this indigeneity without really knowing whether it belongs to her, 
but of course, you know, she's doing this in the seventies and there was a whole lot of that appropriation of native, just, I mean, it was a fashion thing, you know, in the seventies, Lena and Ray are, they would be in their sixties now because the thing's set in 2000. So they're not exactly, they're not my generation exactly, but I don't know. I think I'm pulling on my childhood memories (laughs) of, of what was, (laughs) what was in the culture, you know? I think that Lena is kind of trapped also. Of all the characters in the book, she seems to have the least freedom and maybe kind of get the least satisfaction out of the events of the story. She's sad. And so in that way, her trajectory sort of echoes Geronimo's a little bit. You know, she's on the one hand, Mm -hmm. famous and adored. And on the other hand, she's so lonely. And she is not free at all. I was really interested in the sort of archetypal stories that are around those kind of myths. And it made sense to me that she would have a little bit of awareness of it, that she would kind of realize, I can be Icarus here, or I can be maybe one other thing. <laughs> that Those are my options. The novel explores complex parent-child relationships, such as her son Graham not knowing who his father is, and Jetty facing unsupportive parents regarding her musical ambitions. There's also a big part of his mother's story that Graham isn't aware of. So the idea of how well can you know your parents, how well can they know you and love you for who you really are is really poignant in the book. But, you know, Connie, it reminds me of a piece you wrote for Salon about a secret you learned about your dad back in the 90s when you were sitting in a bar waiting for your friend to get off work one day. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, wow. You really did your research. (laughs) So that story was that I was, you know, sitting in a bar waiting for my friend to get off work, as you said. And there was a guy sitting next to me who had a lighter that that was a ranger lighter, uh, army rangers. And there are only one half of 1% of of the army or some, you know, some small statistic like that. So it was, it was unusual to see. And I said, my dad was a ranger. And he asked me who my dad was. And I uh, told him, and he was just shocked and stricken. And he was sort of drunk, you know, but he said, your dad ruined my life. And he told me this story about he and my dad being young lieutenants together at Fort Sill in Oklahoma during the height of the Vietnam buildup. And my dad had just met my mom and he wanted to drive her down to Houston to meet his mom. So he asked this guy if he would cover his shift for him. And what the shift was, was a mock battle. It was a training exercise. And the team that this guy ended up taking out for my dad were supposed to ambush a truck that was going along the road back inside the base. And they were supposed to attack him. Well, this guy did not check the weapons, which they should have done. And someone that gave them the weapons gave them live ammo. And so this guy accidentally killed a couple of, you know, American soldiers. And he was court-martialed. It was a pretty big deal, I think, when it happened. And he simply felt that my dad would have been the one that that would have happened to if he hadn't covered for him. Mm. Yeah, so that's what happened. And when I talked to my dad about it, he just said, yeah, it was terrible. We were good friends. It was a terrible thing. But he was not terribly receptive to the idea that it would have happened to him. Right. Yeah. 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 He said, I would have checked my weapons. You know, if anything, it wouldn't have happened if I'd been working. But I, it's not my fault. I didn't make the guy make those choices. It was an interesting little side note. And, and he had never told me about it. That's a hell of a story, but the other part of that story is just the fact that you felt there's this whole thing about your father's history that you didn't know, and why didn't you know that? 
And then you start to wonder how much access do I really have to my parents in terms of who they really are. And this all has to do with Graham and what he's dealing with in the novel, with who his father is. And he's very curious about that. And, you know, I never made that connection before to my own past and and the way I wrote Graham. I never thought of that. So I think you're right. (laughs) I think there's something there. The way that backstory with Graham emerged was it felt like I was simply responding to the formal pressures of drafting the book. I initially had, I had Lena and Graham, and I didn't even think for a draft or two about who his father was. And then I did, and I realized, well, that's too big of a puzzle piece to have it be just some some offhanded thing, some, oh yeah, it was some guy she knew in LA, you know, that I had to do something with it. And then all of the options seem too obvious or sort of too, you know, you would just shrug when you read it. And so I really struggled to figure out what is that story? Mm -hmm. I always listen to music in the car. And when I'm working on a book, I'm constantly sort of cogitating, working on whatever problem I'm having in the draft. And um, I was trying to figure out how I could give him some sort of uh, paternity that was interesting to the story. I was listening to Choctaw Bingo by James McMurtry. Do you know that song? I don't. Oh, Christy, it's so wonderful. You have to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) It's really wonderful. I don't want to give too much away, but there's a place in the song where the character says, man, I don't care. And he's talking about being attracted to girls that he's related to. Ah, And I was driving along and I I just, those words, man, I don't care. I thought, who says that? And I suddenly saw where that fit in my story and how it solved a whole lot of problems. And then how it led to another sort of deeper secret behind that. I can't say too much about that, but you know, it all came from music as things always seem to do. So... Cut off bridges and their skinny little halters and their second cousins to me. Man, I don't care, I wanna get between them with a great big old heart on like an old Bodark fence post. You can hang a pipe rail gate from Deucer, Sisters, Twisters, till the cows. You've mentioned that bands like Minutemen and Black Flag played a significant role in your life during your teenage years. How did your personal experiences with rock music influence the creation of the fictional bands and characters in Life from Medicine Park? They definitely played a big part. I was imagining Jetty as sort of punk rock in her sensibilities, although a little country, a little Americana, I guess, in her stylings. I had my own experience with a lot of the music sort of informing the way I imagined that band. I think the whole kind of conversation about selling out that is always sort of the ethos at the center of any kind of punk rock, that was in my mind. It was just this continual ethical dilemma that Jetty really is thinking about and that Lena seemed to almost evade in a way by simply rising to a level of fame that made it irrelevant <laughs> for a little while. Right, right. You know, and then trying to figure out now what does it look like to sell out? So, you know, the thing is, I felt really molded by that notion. And I just didn't realize until somewhat recently what a generational marker it is, what a Gen X kind of thing. We were raised by the hippies. We were raised by the people who booed Dylan off stage for going electric. And then we watched our parents sell out and become yuppies and stuff. And so there's such outrage at the center of punk rock because of that. And the idea of selling out is concerned with it. And then you get to now, or, you know, the last 20 years, and it is a meaningless concept because we're all living inside the world of technology. And to take a real DIY position now would be to whatever, unplug and not be part of social media, get offline. And it would be an entirely meaningless protest because no one would even know you were doing it. 
Exactly. Yeah. And so current generations have an entirely different relationship with that stuff. They have no qualms about doing what they can and doing what they need to do to get as much attention on their art as they can. That is such a different mindset than what I grew up with. I often wish that I could get better <laughs> about that. About that. <laughs> I feel like things would have gone differently, you know, for my writing in certain ways if I had been more easily able to embrace publicity and whatnot without worrying that I was being a sellout. So what's the story with Henry Rollins pulling you out of a mosh pit in 1984? (laughs) Gosh, what research you did. Um, Yeah, that happened. I had sort of run away, I guess, and gone to this show that I was far too young to get into. And it was uh, in Oklahoma City, Black Flag. I could see that all the women were along the walls, but I just sort of thought that that was sexist and horrible and I came to see the show and I'm going to see the show, you know. So I went right up to the stage, you know, where the stage was up against my ribs and then the moshing started and it got serious and then I suddenly understood why they were standing where they were standing. He reached down and pulled me up and sort of pushed me off into the side of the stage. Holy moly. I think he probably saved me from having my ribs crushed. Yeah. Yikes. He, I think he was seriously concerned <laughs> that I was, I was getting hurt. I think I was getting hurt. That is crazy. Well, he's always seemed to me to be a pretty decent guy. You have got to tell me about seeing Jimmy Page when you were running in London. Oh, okay. So yeah, this was in the mid-90s and I was in London just living there for a little while. I would just go out in the morning and wander all over town all day long, you know. And I had gone into Holland Park. I was kind of uh, on a run. That's where Tower House is. Yeah. Is that what it's called? His house is called Tower House, yes. You know way more about it than I do. (laughs) I wandered out of Holland Park, took an exit, and found myself in this incredible neighborhood of mansions that in the United States would have gates around it. But you just find yourself suddenly in this neighborhood. And I was just sort of trotting along on the sidewalk. And I looked to my left and I could see, you know, it was was an amazing looking house for one thing. I was, yes, you know, looking at this amazing house, but there were these long, narrow windows that were at ground level and I could see inside them. I was drawn by this color. It was this beautiful green color on the walls. And then I looked and realized that there was recording equipment embedded in the walls. And I thought, oh, this has got to be a famous musician who has a room like that, you know? So I was just sort of standing there, peering in the windows. I mean, I was (laughs) on the sidewalk. I wasn't, you know, I I wasn't actually just like trying to peer in the windows. I, I was just on the sidewalk. All right. Thank you for that clarification. Yeah, right. And then all of a sudden, side door opens and out comes this guy with a McDonald's bag that he uh, walks, walks up. There's a bin, a trash bin next to the steps and he opens it and tosses that in. And then he looks, he stops and he looks at me. I did not register who he was, but he looked at me with such sort of resignation and expectancy, like, go ahead, go ahead, recognize (laughs) me, you know, that it made me realize that I should recognize him. And I just kind of smiled at him and um, nothing really happened. But and it wasn't it wasn't until about 20 feet afterward that I thought, oh, my God, that was Jimmy Page. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. He said, I don't know. He was nice. He said something to me, but I have been to that house four times just standing there hanging out. You know, I'm probably on security camera footage, just stalking the house. Never once has he come outside, and I'm like the number one fan. I'm the one that who needs to meet him. And I have heard so many stories about people, yeah, I was just wandering by, and out he came. 
So that's a very difficult story for me to hear, Connie. I'm sorry, Christy. I am sorry. I can't imagine what I would have done had he come out one of the four times when I was standing there with a McDonald's bag. (laughs) And I don't equate Jimmy Page with McDonald's. So that also kind of messes with my head. Yeah, yeah. I remember feeling, when I realized who it was, feeling a little dissonant about that too. (laughs) Wow, Jimmy Page eats McMuffins. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Like Jimmy Page, I'm like Emmy Lou, but we come together somewhere around blue suede shoes. You're the rock and roll to my country soul, and I like it. Like a Chuck Berry lyric, I like the song of the fiddle. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. I'm sorry, everybody. We deviated. We got off on Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin. I want to go back to Live from Medicine Park. Talk a little bit about crafting lyrics, press kits, and reviews for fictional artists, because you did all that in the book. And I know the press kit was inspired by Don DeLillo's rock novel, Great Jones Street. But walk me through the process of creating all of these elements for this band, these artists in the book. Oh, that was really fun. I really enjoyed doing that. I thought a lot about just the time I was trying to capture. When I had the idea of her being, you know, someone that they tried to put in movies a time or two, I had fun writing the film reviews and then writing the album reviews was the best part. Just sort of situating her in relation to Exile on Main Street and to things like that. And I I did it so that the reader could imagine the music because it's pretty hard to do that to make it so that people know what to picture. Yeah. And so I thought, well, if I contextualize her around real artists and discuss her in relation to them and compare the bands, then people will sort of know what to picture. Right. That's what I was mostly trying to do. I love the Cream review that you wrote about Lena's album, Rank Outsider from 1977. Here's a quote from that review. Wells writes lyrics full of wind and rain and dust, of gamblers and ghosts small towns and the fury therein, but unlike most country music, which shares some of Wells' sensibilities, the songs on Rank Outsider avoid reliance on domestic betrayal. Instead, these songs drive with magisterial hurt over lonesome roads, death-soaked, and God-haunted. Damn good. And I gotta tell you, when I got to the avoid reliance on domestic betrayal, I flashed on Taylor Swift and laughed my ass off. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Well, you know, I think that that contrast between rock and country, I was reading uh, Mystery Train by Grill Marcus, and he makes some wonderful observations about that in there. In fact, that book was so important to the writing of this book. The whole mythos, the whole American myth idea. I got a lot of energy reading Mystery Train. It, It really helped me. Well, that long black train got my baby and gone. 
I got the idea for this next bit from Peter McDade's novel, The Weight of Sound. It's a game called Only Pick One. You can only pick one from each category I'm going to throw out. Ready? Okay. Let's play the game. First category, Rockumentaries. In the novel, Ray is a documentary filmmaker who is embarrassed to be, as you put it, on the, quote, rockumentary bandwagon. So which of the following actual rockumentaries do you like best? We've got Gimme Shelter from 1970, George Harrison living in the material world. We've got Don't Look Back from 1967, the one that was directed by D.A. Pennybaker that follows Bob Dylan on his 1965 tour of England. It Might Get Loud, and Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, which is mentioned in your novel. Which one are you picking? Ooh, that's hard. Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, though. Chuck Berry. What is it about Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll that grabs you? Well, it's that you actually see how vulnerable Chuck Berry is. You actually see what a difficult person he is, and most of them don't really show you that. You can actually see that the power struggle he's having with Keith Richards in mm. that documentary. It's amazing because it's so raw. And this is Martin's Bible for the Lena Wells Project, Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll. Mm -hmm. It's a great film. Yeah, I love all of those documentaries. That was a hard pick. Yeah. Second category, we know that Lena, at the height of her fame, as we were talking about earlier, was in a movie. So let's talk about movies that rock stars have been in. There's been a long history of rock stars making the leap from concert stage to silver screen, and most of them doing it remarkably badly. So which of the following would you give a Razzie for the worst film featuring a rock star? We've got The Bodyguard with Whitney Houston. I don't know if you've heard of this one. Caveman from 1981 with Ringo Starr. We've got Light of Day with Joan Jett. Crossroads. 2002, Britney Spears, and freaking anything with Madonna. Oh, gosh. You know, I'm not sure I've seen those films, um, but I think I would say Madonna because I'm pretty sure I have seen a film or two with her in it. Yeah. And, yeah, it was bad. Yeah, she's, she's done a lot, and most of them have been pretty horrendous. And, and I think we should give an honorary Razzie to an awful lot of Elvis Presley's films. Oh, true. Yeah. Okay. Next category, moments when musicians have screwed up their career on live TV or in concert. Lena Wells effectively ruined her career when she tanked on The Tonight Show. That sort of thing is hardly unprecedented in the real world of rock and roll. So which of the following such moments are the most cringeworthy to you? We've got Sinead O'Connor tearing up a photo of the Pope on Saturday Night Live. I had to throw in Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars. <laughs> We've got Ashley Simpson getting caught lip syncing on Saturday Night Live. I don't know if you saw that. And then there's Millie Vanilli, another lip syncing snafu. This one was during a live performance on MTV. And then finally, Eric Clapton, this is in concert, not on TV, when he went off in a drunken rampage against immigrants and, and black people in 1976. I have to say Eric Clapton. Yes. That was egregious. Whereas like Sinead, she was expressing something that needed to be expressed, although yep. she may not have chosen the best way to do it. Whereas Eric Clapton did not need to be expressing what he was expressing at all. You know, it's like that Roseanne tweet that she sent out about Valerie Jarrett a while back, and she was claiming to be on Ambien. And Ambien responded, yeah, there's some side effects to the drug. Racism isn't one of them. Exactly. Yeah. And Eric Clapton's excuse for his outburst was that he was drunk. Just it was very disturbing. I've never never forgotten yeah. that. Okay, last section. Drinks mentioned in the book. It's a rock novel, Connie. We have to talk about booze. I'm legally required. Okay. Here's a list of all the different kinds of booze mentioned in live from Medicine Park. If you had your druthers, which one of the following would you prefer to knock back while you're at a rock concert? We've got beer, whiskey. Wine, margaritas, tequila shots, and gin. 
<laughs> I did not realize there was that much alcohol in it. That's hilarious. Um, yeah, well, I, I haven't had a drink in a very long time since the 90s. But if I were going to do that, I'm pretty sure it would be beer. Okay. Now, is it true that beer in Oklahoma is only 3.2%? Because I'm disturbed by this. Yes, that's probably the only reason I'm not dead. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's 3.2%. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's I, I saw that on page 161. I thought, well, why bother? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think we've gotten a chance to talk about Graham Parsons. Lena's son, Graham, reminds me so much of Graham Parsons. Well, I mean, not because he's a, a lot like Graham Parsons, but there are clear Easter eggs in the book that kind of point to Graham. There's one point where the character Graham is performing a concert and he's dressed in some semblance of a nudie suit. And, you know, Graham was famous for his nudie suit that he wore on the Flying Burrito Brothers album cover. What does Graham Parsons mean to you? Well, I discovered the album, that tribute album, Return of the Grievous Angel, Yeah. while I was writing it. this. And I had never listened to Graham Parsons before. And so it was sort of a, an opening for me to sort of learn about the whole country-infused side of rock. Mm-hmm. Growing up in Oklahoma, I had wanted nothing to do with country music at all. You know, it, it just just seemed like something I wanted to stay far away from. And so I really love finding this whole world of, you know, Americana really is sort of what Graham Parsons kind of led me into that was had a lot of, you know, artistic integrity and chops and yet also was so aware of the land and place in a way that I really care about in my writing. So he was just sort of the start of that for me. And that album, I was listening to it all the time when I wrote this. I think the whole, all the bar scenes, you know, come out of the song Return of the Grievous Angel or just the idea of them. So, um, yeah, I gave Graham the name Graham spelled that way, which is an unusual way to spell it. I know. Yeah. I know. Yes. Yeah. As a way, as, as a little homage. And then uh, Jetty's last name is Waycross and Waycross, Georgia is where Graham Parsons is born. Yep. Yeah. And then uh, the guy that made the nudie suits, nudie cone, he's actually from Oklahoma, or I think maybe he's originally from Russia, but he, he lived in Oklahoma or something. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I liked that in there as well. Very nice. Yeah, when I, I saw the spelling of his name, the character Graham's name, I thought, hmm, all right, that's not typical. And then there's a chapter called Hot Burrito Number 1, which is a song from the Flying Burrito Brothers. Oh, that's right. Yep. I love all the, the little homages to Graham. I just felt compelled to sort of bury those in there. Well, Connie, this has been great. Where can folks go to find out more about you and buy your books? And you have to tell me about the new book coming out too. My books are, you know, on Amazon or any bookstore can get them. Um, my website is ConstanceSquiresOfficial.com. And then my new novel, it'll be out in about a year. And it's called Low April Sun. And it sort of concerns the Oklahoma City bombing. It's kind of about what would happen if someone who disappeared on the day of the bombing, people receive a Facebook invitation years later, and they have to try to go back and figure out what happened. Wow. Well, keep me posted on that. All right. I'll put links in the show notes for your website. Thanks again, Connie. Thanks, Christy. If you really want to be my friend, let me live it up. Thanks for tuning in, lit listeners. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods and Apple Podcasts. Links in the show notes. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I really appreciate your support. 
until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.